Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see everyone at our gathering today. My name's Jordan, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary. And over the last couple of weeks, we have began our study through the book of Matthew as we launched our new series, The Upside Down Kingdom, a study of the book of Matthew. And last week, we went through the portion where we first met and saw John the Baptist, and there's a picture of him up on the screen there, and he came as one who, as we wouldn't exactly describe as normal. I think I pointed that out. You know, he was a little bit different. I had one person come up to me after one of the gatherings and say he probably was the original hipster, right? He was always dressing a little different, always eating a little different than most people. He was a wild guy who ate and dressed, uh, if we could just say very eccentrically, and he brought forth a strong message of repentance, And the whole idea behind his talk was that when we repent, we should see fruit in light of our change of thinking. And so John the Baptist was the first, you know, kind of the original fire and brimstone guy, if I could say it like that. He was also very tough on the religious leaders of the day. He challenged their long-held notion and belief that their right standing with God came from their association of their family lineage being children of Abraham. And he, 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 he rattled them, if I could say it like that. Rather than claiming your association with God from your family or who you know, he, he, he instead called for true repentance from our ways and over to the ways of God. And so today we're going to get to that portion of Scripture. We're going to continue on in our study in the book of Matthew. And we're going to get to that portion of Scripture where we first see Jesus as an adult and he's about to begin his earthly ministry. And so we'll read from our text shortly. But before we do that, let us talk briefly for a moment about expectations because this will surely be a theme of our life lesson this morning. You see, we all have expectations. Each one of us expects things to be a certain way, to turn out a certain way. We all bank on something. We all hope that things will be a certain way. Uh, I'll give you some examples. When you woke up today, you expected the sun to rise in the east. It's just something in some form, whether the clouds were out covering it, you still expected to see light today. When you turned on the shower, you expected there to be water. And hopefully at a certain temperature, hopefully you didn't freeze yourself and hopefully you didn't like me burn yourself, right? You expected there to be water when you turned the shower. When you turned the key on in your ignition, you expected your vehicle to start. Now, if you drive a Chevy, you get that whole 50-50 rule, right? Where, you know, it's a little spontaneous from time to time, but I'm kidding. I'm kidding, Chevy fans. I'm joking. But you expected your vehicle to start. You expected to be able to go somewhere. When you drove to church, you expected other people to follow the rules of the road, right? Four-way stops, yields, the, the old famous merges and, and, and properly merging. You expected that, and I'm sure there were no incidents of rage. I'm, I, I'm sure there were no incidents of you getting annoyed. We're Christians. We don't get annoyed at people when we drive, right? So I, I, I expect there wasn't any of that. Um, that could be up for debate. But, you know, when a winter storm happens, that's something that we're familiar with in the last little while here in Manitoba, um, and dumps a huge pile of snow, you expect the snowplow to eventually come. And some of us on our streets have experienced that, and some of us are still praying for that or writing letters about that, right? But we have expectations. We we want things to be a certain way. There are things that we're used to, and we kind of bank on them. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, our expectations can extend beyond inanimate objects and over into our relationships, They can go from just objects and things and over into our relationships. You see, we have expectations of ourselves, don't we? 
We have goals. We have standards. We have certain things that we want to see accomplished in our own lives. Things that we look to. We have expectations of our spouses, our in-laws, you know, that special someone in your life, right? Our extended families. There's certain ways in which we draw things up and we want them to play out. We have expectations of our children. And, um, you know, I'm just a new dad lately. And so I have a little girl named Zara, and she just means the world to me. And, you know, I expect someday that she'll, I want her to love God, and I want her to love people. But, you know, I have this little expectation in my heart that she will one day cheer passionately for the New York Jets, right? And so that's abuse, yeah. (laughs) And so there's a little Proverbs moment here. You see, I'm trying to train her up into that. And the Winnipeg Jets, too, you know? And maybe those are unrealistic expectations. Maybe I'll just settle for if she doesn't become a Patriots or a Canadians fan, right? Maybe that'll be enough for me. But we have expectations even of our kids. We have expectations of our friends, of our employers, of our neighbors. There's all sorts of things that we expect to happen, and there's no denying that. We all count and we all rely on something. I use the New Year's thing because isn't that sometimes just the truth, right? We, you know, we build up New Year's in such a way, and sometimes it just lets us down. But our expectations have the ability to please us, and they also have the ability to upset us. And in some cases, they'll just leave us right confused. And I'll explain more as we go. But with this in mind, with this whole talk about expectations, let us read our text this morning. It's found in Matthew chapter 3. If you're following with your Bible or your phone, uh, starting in verse 13. If not, please just, um, it's on the screens. Here's what it says. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I wish I had a better animate voice. I would have said that in more of a Morgan Freeman kind of, you know, accent this morning. But this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so here we take up our text this morning and we have our first appearance of Jesus as an adult. There's that whole section between Jesus being a child, a baby, and then a 12-year-old, and then we really get nothing. And here Jesus is appearing on the scene as an adult. And so up until this point, John had been baptizing people. And we talked about that last week. And his baptism was with water for repentance, that people would see their error, that people would confess their sin, that people would change their thinking, that people wouldn't just claim associations with certain groups, but they would really repent and change their lifestyle. But now things are about to get interesting because now Jesus approaches him and asks him to be baptized. Now the baptism that Jesus is about to receive is not the same baptism that John was offering. It wasn't for the same purposes, if I could say it like that. For Jesus didn't need any repentance. He didn't need any cleansing from sin. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was the one whom we were waiting for. And so why would Jesus be approaching John with such a request? Let it be known that we're not the only ones who might be surprised at that in this moment. 
We're not the only ones who maybe when Jesus approached John that day and asked him to baptize him, we're not thinking, wait a second, why are you asking him to baptize you? Shouldn't you be baptizing him? And so let's look at our text this morning. Let's look at a few points and a few things that I think we could learn from this story today. And the first thing I want us to look at, the first thing I want us to process in this life lesson is that Jesus, through his baptism, identifies with all of us. Through his baptism, he identifies with all of us. In the Christmas story, we read that Jesus came down, that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He became a man. He knew what it was like to be tempted. He knew what it was like to be tested. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so Jesus identifies with us. He comes down. He knows what we go through, and he makes his home among us. And Jesus models humility. And he doesn't shun the world, but rather he comes down to it. And he begins his ministry with something that many could identify with, and that was with baptism. But if that's the case, that raises a few questions for us. We're probably thinking to ourselves, well, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Isn't the baptism of John for sinners who need to repent, but but Jesus? This is him. Why does he need to do this? You see, by his baptism, Jesus completely identified himself with man with man in our, in our sin and in our failure, though he himself needed no repentance or needed no cleansing from sin. And so first of all, as we read today's portion of Scripture, it is proper that we should be, simply be surprised that Jesus gets baptized at all. Because John had predicted the Christ as a baptizer, that one's going to come more powerful than me, who's going to baptize, right? with spirit and with fire, but certainly he wasn't going to come as a baptizee. Certainly he wasn't going to come as a recipient of baptism himself. It's as if we were to announce the great coming of a great guest, right? And rather than the guest coming in front of our crowd and taking the podium, they come to the front and they kneel. And they assume a position of humility. They assume a position of less than what you would expect, And so this is Jesus' first adult act in the gospel. Until now, he's been a child. And some theologians in my study this past week, as I was reading, said that they consider this incident perhaps to even be Jesus' first miracle, and that's a miracle of his humility that he displays. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is to go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. And Jesus' whole life on earth was going to be like this. Here's how Frederick Dale Bruner describes it in his commentary on Matthew. He says, It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming as completely one with us in our humanity as in the church's teaching. He is believed to be completely one with God in eternity, fully God, fully man. And what we call Jesus' identification baptism, there's a whole theology of the relation of ministers to congregations and of Christian workers to people, and that's to go down, to be there, and to identify with sinners. You see, Jesus wasn't content to lead from somewhere far away, but Jesus came down and made his home and dwelling among people. 
And so Jesus, immediately upon his entrance, he's making a statement by his actions and by his desire to be baptized that he came to live among us and he came to live with us. And that he wasn't content to lead from somewhere far off, but that he made his dwelling among us who were on the earth, among those who were on the earth at the time. And he is fully man, but he also is very much fully God. And we must never lose that truth. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Matthew, remarking on the way that Jesus chose to identify himself, he writes this. He says, we were, he was talking about what we were expecting, and then he says, and instead we get Jesus. The Jesus we have only met so far in Matthew's gospel as a baby with a price on his head, a Jesus who comes and stands humbly before John asking for baptism, sharing the penitential mood of the rest of Judea, Jerusalem, and Galilee, a Jesus who seems to be identifying himself not with a God who sweeps all before him in judgment, but with the people who are themselves facing that judgment and needing to repent. You see, Jesus modeled something completely different than the rulers that the, the world was used to. You know, Jesus wasn't content to lead from the top floor of a building and avoid everyone else who was on a floor below him. Jesus wasn't someone who just necessarily was taking appointments with special or certain people or only elite groups, but he jumped right into the mess of humanity that was there. And he becomes like us and he identifies with us and he is fully God fully man, and he is the perfect one that we expected. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 17, we read the words, he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. I love the way that verse starts. I love that the gospel writer throws us in here. You know, I'm reminded of the words of Timothy Keller when he says that nothing written down in the Gospels is there by accident. Because as that verse starts, we read the words, he went down with them and stood on a level place. And I love that the author chose to include this picture that Jesus went down and stood with people on a level place. He stood on level ground with them. And he stands among us and is among us even today by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is how Jesus chose to, chose to lead. He came down to us. In Philippians chapter 2, we read the words, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And so if Jesus comes down to us, came down to us and meets us on level ground, it begs us to ask the question, do we also meet other people in the same way? Do we also live our lives in such a way that we are also approaching others in the same way that God has approached us? You see, Jesus' humility and his example keeps us from ever thinking that we are above other people or more spiritual than other people or in better shape because of who we are or because of who we know or because of who we've been. You see, Jesus shatters the type of thinking, that type of thinking that wants to elevate yourself above someone else because when he being God, he's not content to lead and rule and approach us from way above, but he comes down in the form of a baby in the most humblest of birth stories. He grows up and he's now being baptized and he's identifying with us and he meets us on level ground. 
You see that example and how Christ has encountered others, how Christ has encountered us, needs to influence on how we encounter each person that we come into contact with. We are not above, we're not below, but we're all on level ground, and grace is offered to each one of us without reservation. The second point I want us to talk about is that Jesus defies our expectations. Jesus defies our expectations. You see, he came to fulfill God's plan. He wasn't coming to fulfill ours. He came to be who God created him to be, not who we wanted him to be. He came to be the Savior that he is, not the Savior that many in this time hoped for. You see, sometimes we prefer a leader who acts, who acts more according to how we would think or what we would desire, what we would do. And surely there are rules when it comes to how people in authority can act and how they can behave in our culture. And I think it's not a stretch to suggest that in our world, a leader usually leads from above and rules over the people. And to become great is to separate yourself from the rest of the crowd, not to join them, not to live among them, not to go become and identify yourself with them. And yet what we see in this passage is that Jesus completely defies our expectations of what he, a Messiah, should look like. And it wasn't just us. It's not just us who are left surprised by the character and ways of Christ. But even his own prophets were caught at surprise by him. Even his own prophets were caught by surprise at him. And here in our text today, we see Jesus approaching John the Baptist, his first time on the scene as an adult, about to begin his ministry and carry out the will of the Father. And he asks John to baptize him only to be met with shock, only to be met with a little bit of pushback here. And John objects to this request. John objects to this request, and he's thinking, you want me to baptize you? You want me to baptize you? And so, of course, John's a little bit, you know, surprised by this idea, maybe in some senses horrified at this idea. He seems to have known that Jesus was the one that we'd all been waiting for. But for Jesus, the one to approach him and ask to be baptized. This made no sense, at least not according to what John had been expecting. And so John is left there wondering, probably to himself, he's probably wondering, what is this all about? What happened to the agenda? Wasn't this guy going to be like, you know, a hundred times me, just preaching at people, getting in people's faces? What happened to the agenda? What happened to the wind? What happened to the fire? What happened to the clearing out of God's farm that I talked about a few verses earlier in this story? You see, if anything, it's not Jesus who needs to be baptized, but it's John himself who needs to be baptized by Jesus. And so for Jesus to approach him and ask him such a question, it really shocked him. It wasn't what he was expecting. And yet Jesus stops that train of thought and insists that this is actually the proper way to do things. This is the way to fulfill all righteousness. This is a part of the perfect plan from heaven and that Jesus needs John to baptize him. This is right to do. N.T. Wright says in his quote here, Jesus' reply tells us something vital about the whole gospel story that is going to unfold before our surprised gaze. Yes, he is coming to fulfill God's plan, but if he, Jesus, is to do all this, this is how he must do it by humbly identifying himself with God's people, by taking their place, sharing their penitence, living their life, and ultimately dying their death. You see, this wasn't original just to this story, but all throughout the Gospels, if you continue to read throughout the pages, you're going to find a group of people who were often surprised at Jesus. 
And so part of the challenge of the passage here for us today is to ask ourselves, is, is for us to learn ourselves to be afresh, surprised by Jesus, is to learn to be surprised by Jesus ourselves. Are we okay with being surprised by Jesus? Do we leave room even still for him to challenge our expectations, our desires, or even our worldviews? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with him, you know, bringing things to us that are different than we expected? Because Jesus comes to fulfill God's plans and not ours. And even his own prophets sometimes seem to misunderstand what he's up to, as we see with John's expectations. And I didn't want to go too far down here today, because we're going to get here in seven chapters or eight chapters. But in Matthew chapter 11, we, we see that John's getting close to the end of his life, and he's in jail, and he's sitting there, and things aren't looking good for him. And he sends a messenger back to Jesus to ask him the question, are you, are, are, are you the one? Or should we be expecting someone else? And John was going through a moment of doubt in his life. Later on, he was probably just as surprised then as he was now. Are you the one or should we expect someone else? And the reason why I think John was asking these kind of questions is because of how Jesus had lived. He was associating, he was helping, he was spending time with all the wrong people. He was hanging out with people from different nations. He was treating Jew and Gentile alike. He was healing a centurion's kid. You see, centurions were enemies of the Israelites. And, you know, for Jesus to be associating and helping all these people, that, you know, it, it, it brought thoughts to people. Is this the guy that we're really looking for? He, he's, he's, he's surprising us. He's breaking our expectations. You see, Jesus will not always play the music that we expect, but if we listen carefully to what he says and watch carefully what he does, we will find that our real longings, the hunger beneath our surface excitement, will be richly met by him and him alone. Michael Wilkins says this is the beginning of the ministry that will forever forge the direction of God's relationship with his people. You see, God is not going to be an impersonal God, but he's going to be very personal. God's not going to be hiding from us, but God's going to be very present in the lives of people, and not just important people, but all people. As Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, he identifies with his people in their need. That is, he identifies with the sinful humanity, the people that he came to save. Leon Morris says it like this. Jesus might well have been up there in front standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he would in due course accomplish. I started off this morning by talking about expectations. Have you ever been let down by expectations that you had? When I was talking about that, have you ever, did something even maybe freshly just recently come to mind, you know? Certain things that you were expecting and hoping for that didn't necessarily happen. You know, I think about expectations that we have, and one of the examples I used was expectations that as parents, we sometimes put expectations on a child or on a kid. You know, if you want to ever see crazy expectations, go to a hockey tournament, a minor hockey tournament, okay, of teenagers, and you're going to see some parents in the crowd who have some pretty intense expectations there. I know that because I was in the crowd with them growing up all the time. You know, we put expectations sometimes even on our children. My boy's going to be a pro hockey player. Or, you know, he's going to be a mechanic like me, or he's going to be a professor. You know, Tom Cochran once saying, my boy's going to play in the big leagues, you know. And sometimes, you know, that kind of thinking can lead us into places where we're sure to be dashed by our expectations when it doesn't happen. And what if they choose to go a completely different route? What if your kids choose to join ballet, right, or play piano, or, you know, get really serious about art classes, or they have different interests than you expected, 
and it becomes completely the opposite of what you expect for them. You see, this is kind of what we're seeing happening here with John the Baptist, and this is what we're going to see happening with a lot of people who encountered Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew, is that their expectations aren't exactly what they had in mind, aren't exactly what they were thinking or hoping for. I'm going to baptize you. Shouldn't you, Jesus, baptize me? And then maybe just as important is how do we react when our expectations, plans, and wills don't work out according to what we had in mind or what we deemed proper? What is our reaction to these things? How do we feel? You see, John was rattled at Jesus' request. In his expectations, in his mind, it wasn't supposed to go this way, and everything was seeming a little backwards. So much so that even later in his life, as things were looking grim, we talked about this a second ago, he even sent people to ask Jesus, are you really the one to come or should we expect someone else? Things didn't appear even as the prophet had thought that they would. And so I ask us the question this morning, do we give Jesus permission to be different than what we want him to be? Are we okay with Jesus surprising us? Are we content? Do we know that we don't have it all figured out? And are we good with Jesus still coming into our lives and bringing us, maybe not what we expect, but bringing us exactly what we need? Throughout the scriptures, we're going to see that we will be blessed when we allow our expectations to be formed by the person of Jesus Christ. Because this is what Jesus does. Jesus defies normal expectations. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. Jesus alone must define his own messiahship and lordship over our lives. And so Jesus often doesn't meet our expectations. And that's a good thing because what we find when we encounter Jesus is so much more than what we could ever think of. It's a blessing that he doesn't line up his life to what we expect because he gives us so much more. He gives us what we need. I've said it before that the minute that we ever think we have God figured out is the minute that we quit actually studying God because a God that you can figure out completely is way too small, way too little. We have to leave room for the element of surprise. There's mystery to faith. I was reading over the Advent season a devotional that talked about the mystery of the Christmas story. Do we allow room for that in our lives of faith? Are we okay with that? God has revealed in Jesus Christ won't be able to fit into any of the boxes that we create, but we must simply receive him as he is because he's much more than enough and he's greater than what we could ever imagine ourselves. And so we must leave room to be surprised by Christ in our life. We're always learning. And it's not like this idea was foreign to the people who were under the Old Covenant. Some of us think that these kind of things were just brought up in the New Testament. But the wisdom of the Proverbs have always instructed us to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. You see, when we, when we lean on our own understanding, when we lean on our own desires or our own will to be done, we can end up missing so much of what God wants to reveal to us, do for us, and show us. It's when we begin to trust Him that we see things that we could never see on our own. Another thing that Jesus models through this passage is He models His commitment to His Father's plans. In John chapter 6 and verse 38, he says, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus was all about doing the will of him who sent him. This obedience and even getting baptized and identifying with the rest of us is an example of how Christ humbled himself and was truly always about his Father's will. You know, the words in Luke chapter 2 and verse 49 
that he spoke to his parents, you know, who are frantically searching for their lost child, ring even more true as Jesus is about to be baptized, that for him, he has been sent to do and accomplish the will of his father. He's always got to be about his father's business. He is in his father's house. And even if it meant lowering himself and identifying himself with people who had real problems and had real struggles and had real sins, something that the religious elite of his day would want nothing to do with, he was going to obey and follow through with the plan plan of God. And what's even more surprising when you think about it is that he wasn't even going to do it alone. He wasn't even going to go it alone, but his desire was to use imperfect and normal people, people like us, to carry out his will. And that's an encouraging point for us this morning, that Jesus uses us in his work on the earth, even today. Jesus was never content to be a lone ranger, but he loves people and desires to use people in his work on earth. And he asks John to baptize him here, using him to unfold the great plan of God. Couldn't it just be easier for him to do it all alone and do it right and make sure that there are no mistakes? In relation to myself, I'm going to speak for myself, of course it would be. Of course it'd be easier for him to just do it himself and do it alone. It'd be done right. But you see... We learn something about our God very early on in the life of Jesus and that our God is a relational God and that he loves us and that he desires to use us in his work on the earth. And in this passage, we see that John's going to be used to fulfill the plan of righteousness. And as we move along, we're going to see Jesus go and choose 12 people to be a part of his inner core, his disciples. And these guys are going to make mistakes. These guys are going to say things they shouldn't. They're going to do things that they shouldn't do. And yet he still wants them to be a part of the plan. And even greater, when we move to today, Jesus, and later on in the scriptures, we see that he uses his church to be a part of that and that we get, have a role to play in his message. You see, God takes joy in bringing us along and using us in his work. We are his workmanship, as Ephesians 2 says. Another point, Jesus' baptism was really an example to his followers. You see, Jesus modeled baptism, and therefore, if we're going to be followers of Christ, we too must enter the waters of baptism. And when we do so, we identify that we are sinners in, needs of, in need of cleansing, that we indeed have been buried with Christ and that we've been cleansed, and we also identify in his resurrection that we too shall live with him eternally one day. You see, baptism really for us is a public confession of the life that you already identify with, and that is identifying with Jesus in his death, in his cleansing, and in his resurrection. It's a symbol of what he has done in your life and that you desire to experience a relationship with him and live your life for his glory. Baptism is a public declaration of all the amazing things that God has done for you. You know, at this point, I'd love to go on and talk about the cultural obsession that the Jewish culture had with baptism and ritual cleansings. I talked about it last year. But I don't have time to fully dive into that today. But just to mention that in this culture, they had an obsession with being made ceremonially clean. And it became a problem for them. They were even criticizing Jesus and his disciples throughout his life. Like, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they do this? Why don't they do this? Why don't they clean their pots? Why don't they clean that? And there was this obsession with always being made clean and you had to do it ceremonially. And baptism became a way for the followers of Christ to identify once and for all with his saving work and end the rat race that ritual cleansing brought for the people of his day. And Jesus commands us to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey what I've commanded because surely he is with us always. I want to make one more point that I think we could take from this text this morning. And it's the part that talks about the love and approval of the Father. When Jesus comes out of the water, we hear the heart of the Father and the words of approval, the words of love that this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I want to make it known. I want us to focus on the fact that Jesus begins his ministry with the vocal approval of his Father. Before his ministry even began, before Jesus ever did anything, we hear the approval of his Father. And I think it models something that is true about how God approached Jesus, how he treated Jesus. I think it models something about how he treats us who are in Christ as well. And it's just this, it's just this thought that we don't need to work for God's approval, but we work from God's approval. In the life of Jesus, he didn't have to do a single thing yet, and yet his ministry begins with the approval of God. We don't work for God's love, but we live our lives from God's love. And it's not just about answering the question, well, who am I? But the bigger question we need to focus on is the question of whose am I? You see, in 1 John 3, 1, we read the words, see how, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. In Romans 8, it says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, we have been called children of God in Christ. And so Christianity is not achieved by earning anything, but it's, it's, it starts by receiving grace from a generous and loving Father. And these words to Jesus are amazing, and they confirm that, yes, indeed, he was the one who many waited for and who longed for. He's finally arrived. He's here. He's beginning his ministry. He's going to change the world. He's going to bring about God's plans. And the seal of approval marks the beginning of the story, and not only when it was all said and done, but it starts at the beginning. How many of you have ever made a mistake before? Anyone? Right on. I see a few hands. Thank you. I didn't want to be alone on that, okay? But we all make mistakes. How many of you have ever been disciplined as a child? Anyone? Right? How many of you like that? The hands went down, okay? But think about that for a second. You know, when I was younger, and I'll use my dad as an example, I remember certain occasions when my dad had to discipline me. You know, I would get into things. I would do things I shouldn't. I would do things that he explicitly stated many, many, many times not to do. And I remember facing discipline sometimes for my actions and for the things I got myself into. But you know what? The truth is, is that even when we face discipline, if it's a healthy relationship, at the end of the discipline, we still know that our parent loves us, don't we? We can still sense that love. And I remember my dad having to discipline me as a kid, and it wasn't fun, and it often made me realize where I went wrong, and it got me frustrated for sure. And sometimes, you know, I felt a little ashamed about the things that I had done. But, you know, I remember my dad disciplining me when I was a kid. But, you know, the one question I never, ever felt I ever had to ask my dad after it all was I never, ever went up to him and said to him after he disciplined me. I never asked him, Dad, am I still your son? I never had to ask him that question. 
I knew that he was upset with some of my actions. I knew that some of the things I did were wrong and I was paying the consequences for them. But at the end of the day, in the healthy relationship with my father, I recognized that, you know, it wasn't even a, a question I would even dare utter. I knew he loved me. I knew he approved of me. I knew I was still his son. I never had to go back to him and ask him, Dad, am I still your kid even after all that? Regardless of what I did, and sometimes I pushed the line a little bit, I still knew that my dad loved me. I still knew that he was behind me, and it made such a difference going forward in my life. And it still does to this day. And it gets me thinking about the verse where Jesus begins to talk, and he says, if you, though you are evil, can give good gifts to your kid, how much more can the loving father give good gifts to his kids? And it teaches me something about God and about Jesus' relationship with the Father, but it also teaches me something about our relationship with the Father. You know, how amazing would it be to go into every day knowing that love and unconditional love and acceptance are available to you, that you start from that point. You don't have to work your way there. You don't have to get there somehow, but you begin there because God so loved the world that he gave and this is how Jesus begins his ministry. He begins his ministry with a seal of approval. He begins his ministry before he even does anything. He begins with approval and with love. And when we identify our lives with Jesus, because we are in him and he is in us, we also are surrounded by that same love that the Father has. You know, a lot of people think that as human beings, we started with original sin. We started with, with original badness, if you could say it like that. But the truth is, that might be true of us, but way back when, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we actually started with original goodness. God created us and said it was good, and he loved his creation. And then if you go to Genesis chapter 3, that's where you'll see sin come into the picture, and that's where original sin came in. But originally it was good. God loved his creation, and in Christ we are reconciled to God. And that's the gospel message. And again, time and time again, when we journey with Jesus, our expectations will continually be blown away. Because in Jesus, the Father isn't some far-off deity who's way up there leading. Jesus isn't way over there, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're invited into personal relationship with God today. And he loves us. And we're accepted in Christ. Allow me to leave us this morning with some words from N.T. Wright. Here's how he says it concerning this passage. He says, at the same time, those who in repentance and faith follow Jesus through baptism, along the road he will now lead us, will find if we listen that the same voice from heaven speaks to us as well. As we learn to put aside our own plans and submit to his, we may be granted moments of vision, glimpses of his greater reality. And at the center of that sudden sight, we will find our loving father affirming us as his children, equipping us to with his spirit, so that our lives may be swept clean and may be ready for use. In a lot of ways, friends and soul community, our life of faith is all about who we identify ourselves with. And Jesus came down to identify himself with us, and we need to find our identity in Christ as well. You see, Jesus' love for us and the world may be the most surprising thing of all, considering how often we miss the mark considering how often we really do deserve what we get. And yet he calls us, and not only that, but he uses us and he loves us the same. And I've heard it said that there's nothing we can do to make him love us more. And just as true, there's nothing that we could ever do that would make him love us less. And so in summarizing 
what I believe we learn in this passage today is that Jesus, upon his arrival, in beginning his ministry, he doesn't identify with the elite, but he identifies with the broken. He surprises us at every turn, and he blows away our expectations of what we expected him to be like. And he gives us so much more. He's perfectly committed to his Father's will, and he brings us along with him and asks us to play a part in it. And in him, we recognize how much we are indeed loved and accepted. Is there anyone today who maybe you haven't felt that in a long time, and you felt that your worth to God was based on what you did and based on the things that you've done? Maybe today you just need to reach out and accept that love that he has for you. It's unconditional. He loves you because of you, not because of what you've done. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I just thank you today for your word this morning. I thank you that you came down to live among us, that you identified with us. And Lord, help us every single day that we walk this journey of life to find our identity in you. Thank you, Lord, for the surprises and just defying our expectations. Thank you that you bring so much more to us. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us this morning and teach us of the love that you have for us. Help us to get a glimpse of that. Help us to get a bigger picture of how you accept and love each one of us so that we could go out into the world and love others and share that with other people. And so, God, I just thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for your word today. I pray that it would just take root in our hearts and in our lives and produce fruit this week. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, enrichment weekend happening next weekend, next Saturday at 9.30. Um, if you're bringing kids, please come talk to me at the Welcome Center. But we'd love to see you all out here next week, and it's going to be a great time. we got great speakers coming in. Can I ask everyone to stand? And we're going to end with a blessing today. And yeah, please stack the chairs as we, um, help us stack the chairs as we leave today. But in the ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands, and those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. And so if you want to receive a blessing, please just extend your hands today. And here it is. May the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes, and may the love of God be reflected in your hands. May the wisdom of God be reflected in your words, and the knowledge of God flow from your heart to others, that all might see, and in seeing, believe themselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.